Welcome to the Obey Podcast, where we see through mainstream narrative. No propaganda, no bullshit, just the truth. And now, here's your host, Matthew Keck. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Obey Podcast. So today I wanted to talk about something a little different. I wanted to look at a few unintended consequences of the government's general response to the coronavirus pandemic. And I'm looking at this through the frame of most of the government regulations and restrictions have been done in error. And I say this, as I mentioned before, and I'm sure a lot of people who have gone down the rabbit hole enough to find this type of podcast have listened to people like Tom Woods and have cons- or have consumed a lot of media about lockdowns. Um, in general, I, I, I guess the short version of what I'd argue is if you look at Florida's numbers and you look at really any state in the United States numbers, they're pretty comparable. Fl- Florida's performed in the middle of, of, country, of, of states in this country in terms of COVID deaths. And if you look at the drastically... Um, if you look at the drastic differences between lockdown policies and regulations, um, Florida is much freer than a lot of states that it's actually doing better than even though it has one of the oldest populations. That's kind of the conservative talking point. You're starting to hear finally come come up now that it's uh, you know already March and these types of talking points haven't started coming up to the last month and a half. Um, but but if you're early on this curve, You've been operating under the perspective that a lot of these regulations were unjust and have been um, unfairly infringing on your life. But what I want to look at now was some, some are more small, but, but some are just noteworthy unintended consequences of the regulations that have been put into place. And a lot of these regulations, I would say, were put into place and didn't actually help anything, yet they're going to have a lot of costs. Um, and and I, I picked each of these for a specific reason. Um, to two are kind of big picture, but but I think one of the smaller ones illustrates a lot of issues of unintended consequences. So so we'll hit on that one too. Um, I'll try to be relatively quick, but you know how that goes. <laughs> okay, so the, the the first piece is from an article back in January by the Wall Street Journal that was about COVID's impact on poor nations won't, won't end soon. That's what it was titled. It was actually in a report they did that was called Outlook 2021. And the reason I bring this up is it kind of is hinting at a theme that has not been talked about enough. And um, if it has been talked about in the corporate press, it's been framed in a way that kind of dodges blame for this situation. So this article is all about the pains that the third world countries and the poorest countries have been facing since, um, you know, February and March of last year. And it's easy for them to frame this as the coronavirus has caused this, but you have to remember that a lot of businesses shutting down and regulations that were put in place were put in place prematurely. They were put in place unilaterally and it forced down all sorts of businesses. It broke down all sorts of supply chains and they completely closed all types of industries. So when you think about these policies, you have to remember that these were unilaterally enforced from above 
and there, there's really no reason to assume that they would have been closed down or shut down nearly as long if there wasn't this overarching government infringement. So if you're coming at this from the perspective of, wow, look how well Florida's done with no real regulation, why didn't the United States um, stay open for longer? Why are some places still closed? And then you have to evaluate beyond personal liberties what damage has been done. And I think that this just shows how, on like a worldwide scale, so much damage has been done. So it mentions here, meanwhile, many emerging economies saw important external sources of revenue sharply cut, cut during the pandemic, though not as badly as initially feared. These countries depend heavily on commodities, remittances, and migrants in richer countries, and tourism. Remittances fell 7% last year, an additional 7.5% this year. According to the Global Knowledge Partnership on Migration and Development, in October, international tourist arrivals were down 83% from a year earlier, a severe blow to tourism-dependent countries like Thailand, and, and a couple that I can't pronounce, I'm not going to attempt for, to pronounce, and Jamaica. With vaccinations rolling out slowly in most emerging countries, tourism may be very slow to return. Um, it talks about commodities rebound, and I don't know if you guys remember, but there was that moment where oil prices went negative because nobody was driving anywhere, nobody was traveling, there were no flights really going anywhere, so nobody was buying gas, and the cost to store oil actually outpaced the actual um, amount people pay for it, which caused oil prices to go negative. So if places in these third world countries were commodity dependent, they lost a lot of money. And these places that are heavily tourist dependent, well, not a lot of people are tra have been traveling out of the United States over the last year if they lived here. Um, and part of that's because of regulations, and part of that's just been the general ethos of our of our corporate press telling us that you should be deeply afraid of the coronavirus, even if you're at no statistical risk. Um, so it's important to recognize the damage that this has done to the poorest of the poor people, the poor people who make their money off tourism and hospitality in foreign countries. I mean, we, we talk enough about how many service workers lost their jobs in the United States and then the damage that's done here. But you have to go beyond that and think of the people who even w w with their you know, income and service and hospitality in foreign countries were still practically starving and living in um, unbearable, uh, in, in, in unbearable situations that is only the only comparable group in the United States is people who are homeless. Um, there, there were people like that who were in that situation while working, and you have to think about how bad they were now when they can't work because tourism is down 80% in their country. So all, all the damage of the coronavirus has international pains that go, go that go beyond what Joe Biden's talking about, that go beyond what Nancy Pelosi's talking about. Like when, when remittances are down 8%, and that's a large uh, chunk of income coming into a country, that's a huge deal for tons of families. And those families aren't numbers. You need to humanize them and recognize the human toll of the political reaction, the policy reaction, the tyrannical reaction to the coronavirus. Um, okay. Uh, it goes on to talk about all kinds of other issues in terms of the third world countries' governments, in terms of uh, corruption and th things like that getting worse and worse. Uh, okay. And, and then and then it goes on to talk about how th th there is no reason for them to really abide by their government rules if the countries have gotten so corrupt as a result of the increasing poverty in these nations. So I I just wanted to touch on that 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 brief um, segment there. Well, one thing that is, I guess, worth recognizing is um, I'm going to link to this in the show notes. I'm going to link to this article and hopefully ask the chart on the online version. 
but but it, but it shows the diverging paths of the gross domestic product um, product for di- for different reasons for, for for different regions. So it has East Asia and the Pacific, and it shows their forecast. Um, so so it shows the trend line going into 2020, and it shows the 21 2021 and 2022 forecasts. And for advanced economies, um, so, so if you think of the United States, Canada, if you think of Eastern Europe and Central Asia, South Asia and East Asia and Pacific, all those regions bounce back to above the the, the trend growth that they were on um, before the coronavirus. It, it looks like that a lot of these places will get back on trend or near back on trend by 2022. But countries like Latin America and the Caribbean and the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa are all uh, so their, 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 their GDP is not bouncing back in the same way you're seeing every other advanced nation. And this ties into other things like how, I don't know if you guys remember not too long ago when Donald Trump was president and there were right-wing populist talking points about how there are national security risks if we don't do things in the United States. Well, those talking points are becoming more normal. We've, we've memory hold that that's a right-wing talking point because people are now afraid of globalization because of international regimes being authoritarian as a result of the coronavirus. And that's going to affect all these third world countries that are manufacturers for first world countries. Where if we exported our, um, well, well, if we imported products from these companies or crucial parts of supply chains, we aren't necessarily going to trust that as, as much anymore going forward. And a lot of that has to do with the way we've responded to the coronavirus. And it's, it's had to do with how a lot of nations have responded to the coronavirus. So you have to keep that in mind, and that's going to affect their trend GDP over the next several years. So the, 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 well, one of the other uh, important meta points of even talking about this is it just shows why central planning is doomed to fail. And it's because everything that happens, so, so something as uh, seemingly simple as shut down for two weeks can lead to things like, I have concerns about international supply chains as a business. And if a large segment of businesses have that concern, then all of a sudden, the gross domestic product of a foreign country that makes most of their money off exports is going to drop. So, so there's all these fragile things that drastically affect the economy. And it seems like you're doing one thing that's smart, and then it leads to two or three other things. And that, that, that's what's so terrifying about a lot of things that come out of central planning regimes, even things that seem highly technocratic, which, which I would like to qualify by saying we don't even get the highly technocratic stuff. We, we, we get a lot of political pandering and lies that turn into bloated policy. But even if we got the idealistic Andrew Yang technocratic vision, there are still like third and fourth level consequences that are very hard to measure and consider before you enact a policy. So, so that's part of what makes all of this um, so challenging to do, and that's why I don't endorse central planning. That's why I think the government makes things worse consistently, and that's why I can look at things from a consequentialist level and separate it from just me talking about how I should have basic rights and freedom and you know the, the ability to freely transact. I can separate that those principles and still think that being an anarcho-capitalist is by far the best system for human flourish, flourishing. Okay. Uh, apologies for my papers wrestling. So the, the, the next thing I want to talk about a bit is another, um, this, this was an article that, that was more descriptive. It wasn't an opinion piece. It's, it's, it just was titled card fees sting merchants during COVID-19 shopping. So I thought this was interesting because pretty much it breaks down the way, um, a lot of, uh, so uh, what's the word for it? A lot of consumer spending is done in the retail sector. 
So a lot of ways that the retail sector um, t- takes in money is through debit, credit card transactions, and cash. Um, as, as a lot of people know, um, if you go to like McDonald's and you pay with your card, you don't get charged a fee. But if you go to like maybe a bodega or a corner store, you'll, you'll, you'll choose to pay with your debit card and there'll be like a 50 cent fee. And you're like, what's that fee? And it's because the, the merchant decided to tack the fee onto you instead of paying it themselves. Well, a lot of merchants pay, pay that fee whenever there's a card, um, transaction, whether it's debit or credit, all those entail different types of fees. Um, so because... Um, the COVID-19 policies that were put into place led to more people shopping online or more people not paying in cash. A lot of these fees, all, all, well, the, all, I, I would note, there was a lot less spending last year than, than most years. So credit card fees declined, but debit card fees actually increased. And this also reflects um, consumer spending and consumer saving. So how people have, a lot of people have actually stockpiled savings because there's not a lot to do right now. So they're more likely to pay with a debit card than a credit card, which has actually led to an increase in fees for merchants. Um, and then I, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm going to speak from my personal experience a little bit, but, but there was a time where the barbershop I go to didn't accept cards. And, and the reason being is because the barbershop wasn't allowed to be open for months. And then when they opened back up, they didn't want to have to pay, you know, 10, 10%, 5% in fees on every transaction. They, they, they were hoping that they could tell people ahead of time, hey, please come with cash to pay us because we're hurting for money. So well, one of the things that's happened is as consumer spending has gone down, more of the transactions have been in fee, in, in terms of um, credit and debit, which has actually led for more fees on merchants. And um, this, so this is an unintended consequence of the coronavirus policies that ends up affecting merchants because they are more of their revenue is going towards paying fees to say Visa and MasterCard and, and, and MasterCard or, or at least a higher proportion even if it's not a higher net number. Um, and I I, I, I I guess I'll reiterate this isn't important in the sense that oh the X policy is better than Y policy. It's important because it shows that all of these things end up impacting other elements of business in ways that aren't foreseeable or they aren't obviously foreseeable. If you sat there and you brainstormed out all the indirect consequences, this is something you'd come up with. But when a bill comes up in front of the floor and it's bloated with um, all all kinds of silly things that they're going to tack onto a 1.9 trillion stimulus, you don't know how it's going to pull things one way or the other. And this is just another way that long-term lockdowns change consumer spending habits, and then that can hurt or help certain industries. So it's indirectly another way the government has picked winners and losers. A lot of people who charge fees for debit and credit cards are now to some extent a winner. They might be a loser because now the government might regulate them because they've gotten attention, but the government picked them as a winner in this situation. And small businesses who needed money to stay alive so they weren't going to only take cash most of the time, they needed card uh, to take debit and credit cards. They, they actually cite in this story in a events um, company. And to be able to run the events in person, one of the things that they did, and they, 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 the, the, the city they were in that they ran events in, they convinced them to let them hold events by saying they wouldn't take cash because they, they, they wouldn't want any transmission via, you know, handing stuff, people that's been in your pockets for days and might have contaminants on it. So they would only do card, card, card transactions now, but all those have fees attached. So that affects their business. So all these little things affect all these businesses, yet we expect somebody to craft policies that don't lead to, you know, 
people winning, people losing, and all these, and, and we expect it to be predictable when there's all these second and third order consequence, and there's all these ripple effects, and all these distortions happen. And we're surprised when we cause artificial booms and artificial busts. Well, when we artificially inflate transactions via credit and debit card and don't accept, expect second and third order consequences. So this is just something I want to bring up for, for, for that reason alone, for that meta point. Um, and, it, and it should always be taken with a grain of salt. And it's just another example that, that, that is worth citing, even though it's not catastrophic. It's a much more subtle example, but, but it affects real people. That, that's the thing. When it comes down to it, the government did something and it affects real people indirectly in a way that people wouldn't have predicted or wouldn't have been at the front of their mind and they didn't consider it. It's, it's something that they took no consideration of, and it doesn't really matter to them. Whatever, it's a fallout of policy, but it's a distortion, and that's how economics get screwed up. And that's, that, that's a small example of how it's not a free market. Because all these distortions, all these things that somebody could argue are bad, they happen as a result of policy. Um, so, so, so that's worth noting. Okay, so on to the last piece. And this was actually the, the first piece that really caught my eye when I wanted to talk about second-order consequences of the coronavirus um, policies that have been put into place is about something that's much more near and dear to people right now, and that's about schooling. So this piece is called The Long-Term Economic Costs of Schooling. This was actually in this past weekend's Wall Street Journal in the review section. Um, This piece was by John Hilsenrath. Okay, so I just wanted to quote a few um, parts of this just because it's it's really noteworthy. So it says... um, so, 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 so it's talking about th- this idea, it's called hysteresis, so imagine a rubber band and a piece of paper, if you push and pull the rubber band, it snaps back into place, but if you crumple up a piece of paper, it doesn't become uncrumpled when you let go. So it's, it's kind of asking, well, what things that are happening as a result of COVID are shocks, like the rubber band that will snap back into place, and what things are now crumpled pieces of paper. So it says the first place to look is in classrooms, says... Eric Henneshek and Margaret Raymond, economists and education researchers at Stanford University, lost study time for children during the pandemic has the potential to do lasting harm and not just to their own long-term prospects, but to American prosperity in general. Um, and then, the, then it goes on to stay, if your child misses out on learning fractions now, how will she perform in algebra later? And the shock has been distributed unevenly. Children in rural areas and areas with large black and Hispanic populations were hit the hardest. Among the states suffering the most are South Carolina and Illinois. So so, so that's also just something worth keeping in your back of your head. I'm sure if you're anti-lockdown, you already know this, but the lockdowns are indirectly more regressive. If you're a kid who has rich parents and one of them is a stay-at-home mom and you live comfortably and you're stuck in online school and your mom's highly educated, she might do a better job of being a supplemental resource than if a kid is stuck at home trying to learn on his own while both his parents are out working and then he's and then this child is expected to uh, stay focused from an online class and learn everything on their own. So it ends up being a regressively distributed um, situation when you look at education and coronavirus, especially for the kids that haven't gone back to schools yet. Okay, so he, he, here's... Um, Here's the part that I find really worth mentioning, and it's definitely new information to me. Okay, so it says economic output is a function of innovation, the skills that workers bring to their jobs and the machines that they use to create goods and services. Innovation and skills are shaped by education. Over the next century, the skills shock of 2020 will produce... 25 trillion to 30 trillion of lost economic output in today's dollars, Mr. Hanyashik estimates, and the lifetime household 
incomes of the affected students will be 6% to 9% lower. He came to this conclusion in part by examining the experience of German students. In 1966 and 1967, the German government temporarily shortened the school year in a rejiggering of the school calendar. Longitudinal studies, he says, showed this lost class time reduced the incomes of that cohort of students by 5% over their lifetimes. Today's students are going to feel the long-term effects of COVID even when they are back in school, Mr. Hennishik says. So pretty much what he's saying is there was a German study in the 60s where they compared people who were um, essentially had their education distorted by a, a messed up schedule, right? So you compared those people to people who did not have their schedules tampered with. And when you compare lifetime earnings, you get a 5 or 6% difference um, in terms of actual earnings. So he kind of is saying, well, if you look at all the Americans, every American child that's in school right now, you apply a similar reduction, you're going to lose trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of output by the time they're adults, and they're all going to make a similar amount less in terms of their lifetime earnings, especially when you consider it's probably been a longer amount of time missed now that some kids haven't been in school in a little over a year. Um, so it, it, it compares the, the effects here to the kinds of shocks that happen in labor markets, because whenever there's a recession, let's say unemployment goes from 3% to 8%. Of the 5% people who leave the labor force, even if unemployment gets back down to 3% in the future, um, if, if you're not aware, unemployment only counts people who are looking for jobs. A lot of people end up, when they lose their job in a recession, leaving the workforce. So what we've seen is whenever there's been a recession, the people who aren't in the labor force at all tend to increase. So even though unemployment will revert back to 3 or 4%, the amount of people not in the labor force will go from 6% permanently to like 8% permanently. So he goes on to say that the amount of, um, well, well the, the, the word I mentioned before, the word I mentioned before was hysteresis, as in it doesn't snap back in place. He suggests that the hysteresis in the schooling problem is actually worse than that type of problem we see in the labor force, um, which is why he finds it truly concerning. So I bring this up because as we observe the public teacher unions, battling it out with school districts and government officials, you have to remember that all these kids who have had their um, schedules deeply distorted and have had significantly worse education over the last year, this is going to cause downstream effects. It's going to be the difference between a ton of kids taking calculus as their last math class and pre-calc as their last math class. And that might sound like not that big of a difference, but when it comes down to people losing essentially a year of education in several subjects, it's the difference between having a bunch of kids get what we would see as a standard education and like an advanced placement education, or it's the difference between a standard education and a year short of what we expect out of the education kids get in schools. So, and me... I personally have considered our education system substandard. That's not very controversial to say. I think it's better at teaching people how to be obedient more than anything. But a lot of the things you do learn or a lot of the things that um, people are currently failing at because our system is so bad, they're going to get even less practice at. So even if I think we're doing a bad job of teaching kids reading, they're doing an even worse job now. So even if the current system was substandard, they're still missing out on times to uh, at least reach the level, the level the government considers somewhat standard now, or at least the failing level they were reaching before. And I'm not one to advocate r rushing kids back into government schools, because I think government schools are absolutely terrible. 
and and I would advise that government schools shouldn't exist. They they should truly be abolished, and it should be something taken care of by the private sector. And they would do it much better. And there's tons of things showing that even for impoverished kids. That, that's why I, I I love to name drop this book. But James Tooley wrote, wrote the book The Beautiful Tree, and it's about private schooling in India for impoverished kids. And those kids in India were getting much better educations for dollars on the day in their slums than the kids were in the public schools. Um, but, but, but that's not the point. It's the, the point is that there is a population that markets could serve and then people could get real valuable educations. They don't get it. But you even have to consider that in the substandard, um, in the substandard education setting we at least have right now, which I wish was abolished, kids aren't getting well educated. But now it's still even worse because of the coronavirus policies. And this is a second order consequence that's going to have huge, huge problems, you know, as those 10 year olds become 20 year olds 10 years from now. It's gonna show when they're challenged for on, so 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 if a kid tried to take a math class now, barely got by, well, when he shows up next year and he's expected to at least have some familiarity with what he learned the year before, but he barely got by instead of getting like an A or a B, well, now he's screwed and then he's permanently behind. So, and then you have to think beyond just, oh, this kid has trouble with fractions and now he's in algebra. You have to think what that does to kids' confidence. You have to think what that does to kids' willingness to learn and their incentive to learn and their, their will to gain new skills. And that's already been a deep, deep problem in the American education system. Okay, so I hope you guys uh, appreciated going through three unrelated issues, but in the end they all show the deep harms and the second, third, and fourth order consequences of coronavirus policy in the United States. Um, I, I, I think it's just interesting to think about, even if it's, um, even if we're not the ones shaping policy, when, when people say, why is the government so evil? You just don't want to pay 30% taxes. You have to, you have to look them in the eye and say, you're supposed to be standing for the dispossessed and everything you're doing. And you've, uh, you've, um, everything you've argued for in the last year has just disenfranchised more of the poorest and least educated kids in the worst schools. You've, you've disenfranchised the more people in third world countries you've you've um well, let's word for it. you've undermined faith in global supply chains which is going to lead to more poverty for people in third world nations you, you've done everything to hurt small businesses like they're not arguing for the voiceless they're not arguing for the working people all their policies hurt people and it's just because you have to take things beyond the surface level um so i, I hope this did a good job of at least if, if these examples are things worth citing and they'll all be linked in the show notes and um, beyond that, it's just stuff worth thinking about. And it's a lens for pursuing policy discussion with people who might be open to being convinced that maybe the, the state isn't a good way to solve really any problem and you should just let the market solve it because cause maybe, maybe third world countries would have been deeply affected by coronavirus if the market could, could respond to it naturally. But to, to, to the unilateral policies that so many people disagree with and the mortality numbers just haven't shown that any of the policy was justified and comparing Florida to California shows lockdowns weren't justified and the market would have figured this out much faster than the government has because the government still hasn't figured it out. Okay. 
I spit a lot out there. <laughs> um, okay, if you guys want to find me on Twitter, my handle is at Matthew T. Keck, and the podcast handle is at the Obey Podcast. You can reach me through either of those if you want to comment or just say hi, or you want to critique me, because I'm, I'm open to all of those, and I always like hearing what people have to say. And if I am misguided and I think you have a valid point or something worth reading, I'm always always very happy to read it. It's it's always stimulating at the least. Um, or, or you can criticize me for being an anarchist, and then you can meme on me, because that's what Twitter is mostly for. Um, also you can check out the other podcast I'm on beyond talking points. Um, it's where me and my co-host, who's also named Matt, we, um, discuss politics. He's a, he, he, he's in support of a lot of the progressive policies I've really reamed here. So you can imagine what a pod, uh, what a podcast is where we argue about, um, things ranging from politics to political foundations to just philosophy in general, how a lot of those conversations end up. Um, it's fun. It's relatively civil, a lot of disagreements. And we, uh, we, we both have some good uh, we have some good rants and some good tangents. So if you want to hop over on that feed and check that out, that'd be great. Um, but otherwise, check out the, the upcoming episodes on this feed or past episodes, and I, I appreciate your support. Um, so sign off for now, and thank you for listening. It's Matt. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcatcher or share the podcast with a friend. You can find out more information about the Obey podcast at anchor.fm slash Obey podcast or on Twitter at the Obey podcast. Until next time. Next time.